My name is Amanda Lawrence. I'm the first speaker today in our service and commemoration of Roe v. Wade. Um, this is the 40th anniversary, and so we'll be talking about about where the where the struggle started, where it is now, and where it's going to go. From the beginning, women have known that our power and our vulnerability both lie in our fertility. We are the keepers of the of the race, right? Um, we grow the next generation. Right now, out there somewhere, is developing a a, a, a fetus, a, what will be a child, what will be a person who will change the world. We don't know, but that child's mother, that person's mother, right now, is um, is knitting them together. So women have that power. We have the power to sustain the race, but with it comes vulnerability, because to sustain the race, we make huge sacrifices. We sacrifice our physical well-being. Pregnancy is hard on a woman's body. We give up comfort in all cases. We give up health in some cases. And in not a non-zero number of times, women give up their lives in order to carry a baby to term. So we make sacrifices to carry a baby. And then motherhood involves sacrifices because in most times and most cultures, the bulk of the child-rearing falls to the women, falls to the mothers. Not in all times, not in all cultures, but in most times, historically. And so women not only then have given up what it took to bring this child into the world, but now they make sacrifices to, to raise and sustain it. Um, the sacrifices are less physical now, although some of them are, in terms of lost sleep. Um, but there are major financial sacrifices. Children are wonderful, but they're expensive. And women's earning power takes a hit when they choose motherhood. There are a lot of sacrifices involved in becoming a mother. And because of that, women always, whether supported by their government or not, have known that a woman has to be able to choose whether or not to be pregnant, whether or not to bring a child into the world. It's, that's the way it's always been. It's been, it's been midwives. It's been, it's been witches. It's been healers. Um, it's always been a fact of life because that sacrifice is an unimaginable joy when it's chosen, but only when it's chosen. So what about our story? What about the Roe v. Wade story? In the 1950s and 60s, there were a few pockets of legal abortion in the U.S., um, but globally it was not legal. Does that mean it didn't happen? Of course not. Now, you can't really get solid numbers on something that was illegal, kind of by definition, but a conservative estimate would put the numbers at somewhere around half a million a year. Now, some of these were done safely. Some of these were done by doctors. Um, some of these were done in ways that protected a woman's life and her fertility, and some of them weren't. Hundreds of women died. That got smaller in the 50s. Now, it, it came down to hundreds from thousands with the advent of antibiotics. Um, so thousands of women were no longer dying, but hundreds of women still were. In 1963, Unitarian Universalist Association became the first religion to formally support a woman's right to choose. They, they saw where things were going, and they knew what the change needed to be. And when the, the people who were beginning the case that would become Roe v. Wade were looking for support, they were in Dallas, and they went to First Church Dallas. They were hoping to find a plaintiff. They didn't find a plaintiff, but they did find support. They found support for the movement and support for the attorney, um, who was a young woman who was a little hesitant about having this be the, the definition of her career. Um, so the Unitarians have supported them from the beginning. But we weren't the only ones, because in 1971, we're fast-forwarding a few years here, there was a religious organization which stated 
that while they maybe weren't so fond of it, that abortion should be legal. It should be legal to protect the life of the mother and also to protect the emotional health of the mother. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to which religious organization it was that made that stance? Nope. Southern Baptist Convention. Southern Baptist Convention. In 1968, an article in Christianity Today stated unequivocally that the Bible states that life begins at birth. And it does. Read your Old Testament. Leviticus is very clear on the, co- on the consequences for murder. And in Exodus, the consequences for causing a woman to lose a pregnancy are not the same. So, so around the end of the 60s, around the beginning of the 70s, we kind of seem to be together on this, Right? The phrase wasn't in use then, but safe, legal, and rare seems kind of like the rallying cry that everyone can get behind. It was a good time to be a woman. 1972, the Equal Rights Amendment passes both, both houses of Congress. I think it must have been exhilarating to be a woman in that time, especially when on January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court upholds a woman's right to choose. I, I imagine, although I wasn't there, that's some, that's some big victories. That's some steps, that's some strides, that's some progress. We can go back to life now, right? We can stop fighting this fight because we've done it, we've won it. You know, for ourselves and for our children and our daughters and our granddaughters, we're done. Except we're not. There's this sense of equality. There's this sense of openness. There's this sense of what matters is not the accident of your birth, but who you are and what you can do. And for the most part, people... Strong people have no problem with the notion that who you are and your worth is determined by what you can do and what you can achieve and what you're, what, who you are on the inside. There are only a few people who think it's really important that an accident of birth determine your privilege and determine your power. And they're weak people. Weak people who are afraid that the only reason they have any privilege and power is because it was handed to them at birth. Who are afraid they couldn't earn privilege and power if it weren't given to them. And so around the 80s, there starts to be this sort of insidious little movement to tie together the evangelical church with the anti-abortion right, with the anti-abortion movement. Um, they, start, they start turning women against each other, taking women and telling them that this, is, that this is murder of an unborn child, ignoring the fact that 18% of fertilized eggs don't implant on the uterine wall at all. So on whose head do we place those murdered babies, if we're going to call them that? So, th- so things have continued, Right? sort of a quiet, insidious, slippery slope to the point that now we have Congress people who stand up and say ridiculous, obscene things about legitimate rape and rape being a gift from God, or at least what God intended, and say that there's no such thing as a pregnancy that, that, that threatens a, a mother's life, that that's just made up. Now, those people don't win, right? Because it um, turns out women do have ways of shutting things down. <clears throat> But there's this goal, there's this desire to, to take away our rights, to take away the rights that our mothers won for us. The rest of our speakers today are going to talk about dialogue. They're going to talk about common ground. They're going to talk about the things that unite us and the ways we can work together. And I would love for that to be true. And I really hope that that's true. And I will work to make that true. But if it's not true, if there's a fight coming, we will fight. We will fight again. The quote for me is from, it's got to be Shakespeare, right? Henry V, Act 3, Scene 6. The sum of our answer is but this. We would not seek a battle as we are, nor as we are, we say we will not shun it. This is a fight 
about women's rights. This is a fight about families. This is a fight about human rights. I will fight this fight for the women who fought it before. I will fight this fight for the, for the doctors who've lost their lives. And I will fight this fight for my daughter. Because if it comes to the point that she has to make a decision, she will not be looking at a back alley as an option. We're not going back. I'm not cringing at all. I <laughs> thought that was wonderful. So the conversation, and, and, and I am one of those people who believes there can be one. Um, I know that, like me, a number of you listened to a program on NPR entitled On Being with Krista Tippett. It used to be called Speaking of Faith. She has embarked on something that just does my heart an amazing amount of good. It's called the Civil Conversations Project. And she brings together people from the so-called opposite sides of difficult issues for reason talk and, more importantly, for deep listening. The two people she brought together to discuss this very complex issue were Christian ethicist and Baptist minister David Gushy. He's from Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. And the former president of Catholics for Choice, Francis Kissling. I cannot recommend enough that you find this conversation online and listen to it. Google, you can Google onbeing.org or you can Google Civil Conversations Project, I think, actually, and go more directly to it. And wherever you may be on the spectrum of this issue and what the louder voices at either end seem to forget is that it is a spectrum. We have those of us who want as as passionately as Amanda does for it to remain legal and safe and rare, do have our own ambivalent feelings. We are I don't know I don't know anybody who's pro abortion. I don't know anybody who says, Yay, abortion, let's do that. So wherever you may be, as I said, on this spectrum, I want you to consider two questions that she asked of both of these people. You can listen to their answers on their own, as I said, go and listen, but I'll share mine. The first question was, what do you most admire about the so-called other side? And both of them hate those terms, pro-life, pro-choice, because they've been done to death, and yes, it's better to call people what they want to be called, they're a whole lot better than, say, baby killer or woman hater, you know, they're better terms than that, but they're not... Uh, they're not especially useful terms um, anymore because because we've become so polarized. But they said, what do you most admire about the so-called other side? And I admire what Dr. Gushy called the consistent ethic of life. This resonated with me because this is a lot more like the Catholicism in which I was raised. I may have disagreed with the teachings of my church on the legality of abortion, but I respected the priests and nuns I knew for coming down wholly on the side of life. They were against the war in Vietnam. They were against the death penalty. They were against penalizing the poor for being poor. What a concept. Joe Biden brought out that aspect of Catholic social teaching in his debate with Paul Ryan, and I was so glad that he did. To this day, I respect and admire that. And when I get up the courage to have this conversation with my nun friend, I will tell her that. That day is coming. I'm not sure when. 
The second question she asked was, what makes you most uncomfortable about the people and arguments on your so-called side of the issue? And for me, that answer is that we're often too afraid to engage the gray areas of this debate. Because there is a lot of gray. And that fear is understandable for all the reasons that Amanda just said. We're seeing a chipping away of access to this procedure that, that runs the risk of, of achieving the result of overturning Roe without ever actually accomplishing that. But the majority of people don't want that. They don't want it to be illegal. They don't want to go back. Poll after poll bears that out. But I don't think we have a prayer of communicating across these lines until we can admit that, yes, this is a life, no more important than the life of the woman bearing it, but yes, it is a life, and we can see that ever more plainly with the advances in ultrasound technology. And what a joy that is when that is the chosen path. But from there, perhaps we can move to a compassionate place of reducing the demand for this procedure rather than criminalizing an entire group of women and their doctors. Many of you have spoken with John Ratcliffe or Susan Bettinger in this congregation on the idea of one-on-one congregation conversations as a way that we ultimately strengthen the web of our congregation. And indeed, we can't talk to anyone beyond these walls if we haven't learned to talk to each other. And we probably have a variety of differing views right here, maybe not as wide as the spectrum is out there. But let's be willing to engage that. It's important that we build relationships. It's important that we see and that we be the human face on the one we think of as other. I doubt that any of us have to go too far to find someone we love, or at least like a lot, who holds a differing opinion on this issue. I urge you to find that person and somehow, with great respect, begin this conversation. Begin a conversation. That's the only way we moved from our entrenched positions to even the possibility of common ground. Will you join me now in the spirit of prayer? Source and spirit of all life, we are grateful for this time and this place where we are free to engage the most complex issues in a safe and welcoming setting. We pray for ears to listen deeply, eyes to see clearly, and that both might be passages to a calm center and an open heart of compassion. We pray that even in the most difficult exchanges, we might honor the divine spark that lives within us and within each person, and that we might measure and moderate our words accordingly. Keep us mindful in our dealings with others that we need not sacrifice passion or conviction to the practice of respect and civility. Let us create and sustain in this place a haven for all who stand at difficult crossroads, resolving that whatever their path, they not walk alone. We carry these things in our heart as we enter the silence. Being pro-choice in today's society means picking a side, 
which is strange because, as Susan mentioned, neither side actually wants to see more abortions. Still, though, with this issue, every election and every media blitz were asked to pick a side. There are several things that the pro-life movement does very well. They have organizations like Crisis Pregnancy Center all over the country that offer free pregnancy tests. As a matter of fact, it is the only place in Shreveport where you can get a free pregnancy test. I confirmed this with the Hope Medical Group for Women, um, an abortion clinic here in Shreveport and one of only seven in the state. Women and girls of all ages go to Crisis Pregnancy Center, often alone, often scared, and are given their pregnancy test and then presented with anti-abortion and religiously affiliated pamphlets and prayers that offer biased information on adoption, parenting, and abortion. To put it bluntly, vulnerable women and girls are lured in with free pregnancy tests and then given misinformation, sometimes exaggerations and sometimes outright lies. There are even reports that sometimes after a positive pregnancy test that the girls and women are presented with images of an aborted fetus. Can you imagine getting a positive surprise pregnancy test and then being presented with that, that kind of pressure? As I said, Crisis Pregnancy Center is the only place in Shreveport that offers free pregnancy tests. This is an opportunity for liberal religious institutions such as ourselves and other progressive organizations to come together and offer free pregnancy tests and information packets to those seeking them. You can buy pregnancy tests at the dollar store. You can buy them for pennies on the dollar online. And we could also include information about parenting, including how to apply for WIC or Medicaid or parenting and pregnancy classes available in the area, adoption, how that's done through the state and through private organizations, as well as complete information on abortion and accurate information about where it is available here and where it is available outside of Shreveport, including in Bossier and in Dallas and in Little Rock. When a woman or girl is offered complete information as soon as possible, that's the sooner that they can make a choice as to what to do with themselves and their bodies. Another area that the pro-choice movement tends to shy away from is post-abortion support. Pro-life organizations, including Crisis Pregnancy Center, offer free counseling and group support for women who have had abortions. We have no pro-choice equivalent. Some Planned Parenthoods offer free counseling. Most do not. We have nothing here locally. There's no group where women can come and say, I made the best decision I think I could make, but I still hurt. I think part of the pro-choice movement's fear of affirming those feelings is that in some way it would also be affirming the pro-life's statement that abortion is murder. We're human, and sometimes we hurt. And you can be pro-choice and you can hurt. And I think the compassionate and kind thing to do would to be to form pro-choice support groups for women with post-abortion feelings that they'd like to sort out. As I said, Shreveport doesn't have any. Short of paid counseling sessions or a willingness to expose their vulnerabilities to pro-life support groups, these women are on their own. Some women and girls don't have trouble recovering from an abortion, but some do, and sometimes it takes decades to get to that point. And it's okay for the pro-choice side to soften itself and recognize that and provide those who want it with the support they need. I've spoken about two areas that affect women and girls once they've already had a pregnancy or a pregnancy scare. But we can best serve everyone by educating our children before they are faced with either of those situations. 
One thing we as a denomination offer is the Our Whole Lives curriculum. We have trained volunteers who provide comprehensive sex education based off a guideline set forth by leading health, education, and sexuality professionals. It focuses on self-worth, sexual health, responsibility, and justice and inclusivity. Children are exposed to age-appropriate sexual education, and it's applicable to all children. There may be families who are leery of joining our church or of joining any church, but might appreciate a comprehensive sex education for their children that they will not get in our schools. Al contains no religious references or doctrine. Imagine the young minds we could reach with the proper marketing efforts. In turn, imagine the decreases in pregnancy scares and abortion amongst those children that we serve. We must open up owls to the community loudly and proudly. The first step to effective action is education. I hope that as our Unitarian Universalist denomination examines reproductive justice, that this church and that us as individuals will be a front runner to an underserved community for protecting and affirming the lives of women when it comes to their reproductive lives. Thank you.